Relating to Self. A podcast that helps you create a better relationship with yourself. Hey, I'm Joachim. Welcome. Do you realize that there is only one relationship that you will always be in? The relationship with yourself. Improving that relationship changes everything. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and I invite real people to have vulnerable conversations about how they relate to themselves and what we can learn from that. Stephen, welcome to the Relating to Self podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm very interested in how this conversation will go. Um, <laughs> I'm makes two of us. I'm I'm a, a artist here in North Carolina in the United States. I've uh, worked in software most of my life as my actual profession. I uh, do what is called product management. So I'm kind of the person who makes the decision about where the software will go next or what will be added to the software products next. I have a small team I manage and I'm working on a startup right now for that. So that's where some of my creative energy goes. But I'm also a painter part-time and um, I've been doing a lot of writing lately. And so um, I'm also a you know, father of three grown kids and um, have a wonderful wife I've been married to for 42 years now. So, um, so, th so that's me. Um, lots of creative work at work, um, completely online. Um, we have a great team of people I work with, and uh, you know, I just love relating to them and figuring out creative solutions to problems. We work in the healthcare space and, and software in the healthcare space. So wonderful. Well, Stephen, that sounds sounds great, and we are here today mostly to speak about your relationship with yourself. And I'm sure some of the subjects you just mentioned will pop up, as in, you know, children marriage, yes. teams, and that kind of stuff. I think these things are intrinsically related to how you relate to yourself. But I'm curious to start with, I always ask the same question. When you hear the words relating to self, what does that mean for you? Or what comes up in your mind? So what primarily comes up for me is that I, for the last three or four years, have been relating to myself as a group of individuals or group of personas or personalities. Um, I've dialogued with those different parts a lot. I spend a lot of time journaling about uh, either past events or current events in that, in that same vein. So I will sit quietly with myself and wait for some part of myself to sort of emerge. I paint the same way. I paint by by putting a series of lines down on a piece of paper and or 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 a canvas and then waiting for something to emerge. Um, I do this with a lot of different different things that I do and different different approaches I take to even things that work in the software space. Um, I frequently find myself letting things just sort of happen. So when I when I'm relating to myself, I've discovered that there's a whole kind of cast of characters inside and i know that there's some psychological theories that work this way that that, that um, use this kind of concept that you're a family kind of, of individuals that you make up that, that makes up yourself 
Um, and it's been fascinating to do that kind of work in journaling. And it's been fascinating also to learn how to accept or understand the different parts that become that are that are parts of me. When I first started this work, I thought I had to integrate all these parts like they like I was some sort of shattered being that had to be reunited or something. I've learned that there are certainly parts of myself that I'm less comfortable with and so have a harder time relating to. And those parts sometimes feel like they've been rejected or held at, at arm's length. And it's been fascinating in the journaling to let them approach or let them actually speak. Um, and I've, I've done that with my fiction writing as well then. Let the storylines emerge, let the characters speak. Um, and so this whole concept of just letting things kind of come out is a large part of how I relate to my to myself. One Wonderful. of the things that was There's so much important to oh. important <laughs> to learn. It's okay. One of the things that was important for me to learn, though, in this process, especially in the last couple of years, was that I don't actually need or even want to integrate all those parts. The distance or the gaps between the parts is a large part of where the energy comes from, either for creative things, or for understanding, or it's almost like the energy that's available in the atmosphere for like a thunderstorm where the, the 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 drive that makes weather happen is always from differences differences in different air masses or differences in different um uh climate when they when they merge or when they confront or, con or contact each other and without that energy i mean what would we have the weather of southern you know southern california it's nice but it's not very interesting right so i feel the same way about about myself it's there are there are many parts of myself that at first i was i thought needed to be either changed somehow or 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 resolved in some way and that's not what i'm currently thinking or how i currently relate to those parts it's more that they have a they have a place and they often have something important to say and a point of view. And again, the point of view is a good way to think of it, too. If they're not somewhat distant from the other parts, then there isn't a point of view, you know, it's, or it's, it's all the same point of view. And it's not very interesting. Yeah, I hear you. That's fascinating. I, I would love to know more about specifically this weather metaphor that you use, right? I think that's very aptly put. I think I have a similar concept in some ways in the sense that I use this metaphor of tension and release. Mm -hmm. And I'm a musician originally. Mm -hmm. that's, that's my background. So when thinking about music, what matters in music, why music works, or, you know, when something happens in music, it's always about creating tension and then releasing it. And what you mentioned as this kind of like confrontation of the different parts and the space between them as a creative drive feels similar. And I'm then curious to know if you actually maybe foster a certain distance between the parts. Like, is there a part of you that kind of wants to keep the parts a bit distant yes. to be able to profit from that creative energy? Yes, there very much is. One of the, um, 
one of the parts that emerged, and these, these parts eventually become distinct enough in the conversations that some of them actually acquire names and almost like full personas. Um, some of them I've even actually attempted to um, draw or paint. Um, so that's a fascinating idea. And I hadn't thought about it as tension and release. Um, and now that you mention that, um, that's I'm going to be looking at and listening to my music differently as a result of that of that remark as well, because that that makes perfect sense to me as soon as you said it, um, because that is what I feel when I'm listening to music. You can hear the tension building and then you can hear it either being gently let go or explosively let go or whatever. But yes, that's that's amazing. Um, when I think about that in terms of the the parts of myself, there's a part that emerges fairly often or especially in the in the in the almost more fictional kind of journaling I do that I refer to as the trickster because he's, he's, he reminds me a lot of descriptions that of Hermes, the way Hermes is described by, um, by uh, Robert Bly um, as being someone who punctures pomposity and is not on a, not on a, a, a career path. It's another phrase he uses. He's not on a career path. He's, he's busy trying to stir things up or point things out. Um, I used to dialogue with my own anxiety and anxieties, and we would play knuckle bones. The, the anxiety would, would sit in front of me. Um, and he has a particular shape. He's built like a refrigerator box. He's, <laughs> he's this big, great boxy thing and he's taller than I am. And, you know, and, but the trickster shines a light on him that shows him just sitting there sort of in a, you know, in a short terry cloth bathrobe with mismatched socks. You know, as being somewhat more of an embarrassed and embarrassing character, but he's he's ominous when you don't really look at him closely. And we play knuckle bones, and the knuckles are cast, and I pick up these objects one at a time, and we have to figure out what are they and what do I use them for and how do I relate to them. And each one of them turns into be turns out to be something that I've not been facing lately or just sort of have as attention in the background. And um and so the trickster is the one that showed me how to do this. And the trickster is the one that showed me how to take each of the knuckle bones and figure out what to do with them. Um, and in each case, they're not supposed to be, again, they're not supposed to be resolved. They have to be put back. They're like, they're like toys that were left out on the floor and they have to be put away. So each one of them has to be, has to be looked at firmly enough to understand what it is, which usually dredges up and brings up emotions that I haven't really been directly thinking about. And oftentimes I can tell exactly what it is that's been bothering me or worrying me. It's something that's been going on at work, something going on in the world, something with a family member. And I'll take that sort of more ambiguous set of emotions and figure out something to do with it. And it's usually something very metaphorical, like it might be um, tossing it up in the air or it might be it might be eating it or <laughs> it might be it varies a lot what they are. Um, but each object kind of suggests its own its own thing to do with it. So that's one of the things the trickster does. Um, and the trickster also will sometimes show up and simply take me for like a walk and we'll end up wandering through some landscape or something. And the landscape itself becomes a way of understanding things that, are, I, that have been going on in my subconscious that I've not been aware of, but that are affecting my behavior or affecting my mood and overall overall attitude about things. And it's um, it's fascinating sometimes to have him lead because he will often take me right to the source of what's the stickiest, worst, most difficult thing that I've kind of not been addressing 
not been considering. Um, so I very much value when he shows up. But yes, mm. he tends he tends to instigate. He tends to push push things. Um, I'm not sure I would do that myself. Or or I'm, I realize that all of this is me, of course. But um, I don't think I would do that in my conscious self. Yes. Yes, I see that. I'm 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 curious about this this idea that I briefly mentioned before of maybe wanting to keep the distance or mm. wanting to keep the tension, wanting to keep the space between the parts in order to create. Because for myself as well, I noticed that, well, I was an artist for quite a long time. And in many ways, I believe my artistic drive and the subject matter of my artistic practice came from my early life traumas. And I used that as a kind of way to transmute that, to kind of express it in the world and, and through that kind of maybe find some kind of revolution. And as I have healed myself more intentionally, I felt the need or the desire to create diminish, which was really interesting and triggered some kind of almost like an identity crisis, right? Mm -hmm. And um, in a state of equanimity, I would say, when when there is only release when there is no tension, right? Um, maybe there is no need to create much. And so I'm, I'm really curious about your relationship to this idea of equanimity and whether maybe you subconsciously reject it in order to be able to keep getting energy from that process of tension in yourself. Um, the, the, my experience is very similar, in a, but, but kind of upside down to that. What what has happened is the the during the pandemic and a number of other things that have gone on here in the U.S. and politics and so forth, my anxiety and my my just overall um, well de depression and anxiety both, which run in the family, um, got to a point where I needed some medical help with that and some treatment, and so I began taking a very mild um, uh, serotonin related drug, and it had. And I'm still on it actually now on a reduced dose of it. It's the effect of it has been to reduce the anxiety. And as a result of reducing the anxiety, I found that I had lost that as a motivator. It was kind of like jet fuel in a way, right? It was, it was this very strong uh, energy that I was experiencing very negatively and had, had gotten to a place where my habits in terms of how to deal with it were negative enough that I was no longer actually able to manage it. And that's why I went on the drug for a while. Um, and I'm still on it. But and it's only been like eight months, eight months, nine months. Um, and during that time, it has been more difficult to create. It's also been more difficult for things to emerge in this process that I use. And so I've very much become conscious of the fact that that tension, that anxiety for me is not only a motivator, but also a source of where the images come from. And I was able to switch to writing and have had a lot more emerge that way lately. The characters seem to carry much of what's going on. But there too, I have found that the stories are more quiet. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. There's there is there is less of this tension. And so I've begun to realize that as I begin to taper off the drug on the other end of this 
intervention, right, which has meant mostly for me to reduce the anxiety to a place where I could develop a different set of habits, I could begin to interpret things coming in from the outside world differently without the same kind of knee-jerk reaction that I had had built up over most of my life, actually. Um, and I'm in my I'm, I'm in my early 60s. So um, it's it's a long time of having these bad habits, right? So I've been building different habits in how to approach a lot of this. Things that go on at work, for instance, that normally would have stressed me out or freaked me out even, um, I now find interesting and even exciting. So because mm -hmm. my inside anxiety is lower, I'm able to take and interpret outside stressful moments or outside pressures as a kind of energy that I can use. But I'm not in control of that energy. I'm not, not in control of when it shows up or how much of it I'm going to have to, you know, it's going to come at me or whatever. The inside stuff I was more directly in control of and could use. And so it's been very interesting. And I'm very curious to see as I come back down off the drug on the other side, how, how the anxiety or the inner emotion landscape starts to emerge again. And the water level rises almost, if you like, how I, how I relate to that emotionally. And this conversation's already paid for itself, in my view, because that 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 understanding that that tension is valuable for for creating not just as fuel, but also as potentially the not the object of the creation or the subject of the creation, but as a space that it can take place in, and maybe even the map that it's drawn on the that the the tension is between the different landscape points or the, the 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 distance that opens up between things in the landscape and it's in that space that the dance can happen the dialogue can happen the images can emerge etc um and so it's i've i have had this feeling that getting off the drug will be difficult and i was knowing that was I needed to navigate that space that time, not necessarily looking forward to the transition itself. This conversation makes me think that the rough and tumble of that transition itself may even be something I can use if I can. It'll be almost like surfing a wave, right? If I can get up on the surfboard and stay on it. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's beautifully put. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I've been reading this book called Existential Kink lately. And I'm still very much in the process of trying to figure out what that's about. But one of the concepts of the book is something like having is evidence of wanting. And I think this points at something that is like, there's no morality necessarily in having anxiety or not having anxiety, mm -hmm. right? It's not about, oh, being anxious is bad. You should not do that. Mm -hmm. You should strive for equanimity. No, it's okay to be anxious. Maybe there is a part of you or, or parts of you, several parts of you who, who need that anxiety, who want that anxiety to be there in order to be able to do whatever it is that you want to do, right? right? And so it's not about judging that. It's just about accepting the fact that, or maybe even celebrating the fact that fuck, I love my anxiety because it enables so many things I want in my life. And that brings you to a very different kind of mindset then. And like you say, I think surfing that wave of, of the inside into that, I think is a very good way to put it. And this, this is like 
part two of an insight that I had from um, from Helena. Helena mentioned something that had come up in one of her conversations with one of her friends. Um, and actually, I was at a book party of hers online, and actually, the friend was there. And he he mentions, I can't remember exactly how he put it. Um, he does psychological work, so he's, he's in that profession. And he mentioned something about um, accepting the parts of us that are difficult and and harder to get along with and that's the moment that's almost two years ago two and a half years ago that's the moment where i realized wait 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 i'm not supposed to integrate all of this it's not supposed to become a steady state right a flat a flat line it's meant to be more diverse than this and so this is part two and this part two is like the way I relate to and manage that those tensions, the way I experience them emotionally, is has been difficult for me because I have not viewed it in a positive way. I have not been able to get meta to it, <laughs> mm. right? I have not been able to separate myself from the feelings as much as I probably need to. And the ability to do that I think will be essential. I can't get up on the surfboard if I'm the board or if I'm the water, right? Um, although we're all one thing, really. But I have to be able to take this position to get up on the surfboard. And the idea that the art itself and the creating itself and other things will be from some more conscious management of, or not management, it'll be more a conscious relationship with the anxiety itself the emotions themselves, um, that's that's fascinating. I've been thinking that the anxiety coming back will give me more motivation to create. That's been great. And I knew I knew that. But the idea that it would be that my relationship to the anxiety could itself <laughs> be another another space that I can open up or another another tension I can potentially create or uh, and create and release again because when i'm playing knuckle bones with anxiety what happens is that i start out usually because the tension has gotten to a place where it's uncomfortable for me you know i actually feel physical physical things right you, know, you feel your, your stomach is clenched and whatever else and i realize okay okay it's time to play knuckle bones so i sit down and i'll sort of take it out of pad and i'll do this and while i'm doing it the tension rises because i'm actually facing or dealing with each of these individual anxieties that have not really been allowed to take full form and for me to be able to bring them into my conscious mind and understand what it is that's been bothering me or eating me or I've been worrying about on some subliminal level. But as they emerge, they, the tension grows because it's like this realization of and, and facing of this thing. And inevitably, once I face them, they're no longer that big a deal. Right. They kind of and that's the that's the the release. The release is, is then knowing all oh, this is some so I've kind of missed that while I've been on the drug. It hasn't it has, I, I haven't once felt the need to play knuckle bones in the last nine months. So I haven't I have not. Right. And so <laughs> there there is this there is definitely there's definitely a loss, right? Um the landscape before, I guess, I would describe as being much more buried and having a lot more rough patches, places where there's something difficult to climb over or something to wade through or 
a swamp to go through with a, you know, a big stick trying to poke things away from me as I will go through so they don't bite me on the way through. And lately it's been like, you know, a savanna. It's very easy to walk across. It's not much even in the way of hills. And that's been good for a little healing, like a trip to the beach. But that's not where things happen. Not for me anyway. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, there aren't even large animals wandering around the savanna. It's really kind of just very pleasant. Mm. Yeah, I hear you. I would love to know more about something you mentioned in the beginning when you introduced yourself, uh, this concept of letting things happen. And you mentioned that you use it for your parts work, but also for your work work, as in even in the software and in the painting and in the writing. And you also said that for, for that to happen, for things to emerge, you like to sit quietly. And that was fascinating to me because silence has been one of the things that I have craved throughout my life more than anything, almost. And when I say silence, I don't only mean the absence of sound, right? It's more like a, a state in which I can then listen to the subtle movements within myself or to the world. So I'm curious to know more about what you perceive as sitting quietly in order for things to emerge and what that looks like in, in practice for you. Interesting. It, it does obviously involve quiet, although not always. Sometimes I can play music, but there can't be words. Um, and I think that's a large part of what the silence is. Silence is about a lack of words. Um, so I find that very much my conscious mind thinks very much in language. Um, at work, when I let things emerge, they tend to emerge in my head, either in matrix matrices or outlines, right? The thing that's emerging usually has one of those two structures. And so it's almost always either words or spreadsheets, <laughs> right? So that's, that's kind of how I, how my conscious mind kind of organizes and sorts things out and figures things out and, and things can emerge into the spreadsheet or to that structure and that structure allows the shapes and things to change. So that works well for more conscious work. But when I'm trying to get in touch with stuff inside and I, I hear you when you talk about craving silence, um, our lives are so busy and distracted. It feels like mostly it's just shutting down the inner language. And sometimes I need words to do that. When I first started painting, I was, um, as a teenager, I could, I had trouble with it. I had trouble letting things emerge or letting things happen. Um, when I took up painting again as an adult and began the long series of, of paintings and things that we now, now, now the artwork appears on my website and stuff is I had, I had to listen to music in order to paint with words. It had to be w music with words specifically because that would help tie up the verbal side of myself. And then the nonverbal side could emerge and begin to take over. Um, many artists have ways of doing this that involve things like blind contour drawing, where you're trying to do something that's basically impossible. You're trying to draw without looking at what you're drawing. You look only at the subject. You let your pencil find its way around the outlines of the thing, but you can't look. What you're drawing, and when you're done, it's a mess. It looks a little bit like the thing, maybe, but it's a mess. And that exercise, I think, is so frustrating to the more rational left side of kind of of the brain of the mind that it it just kind of bails out. It just says, "Forget it." And then this nonverbal 
and for me, very quiet side gets to emerge and do things. Um, sometimes I can, can, can encourage it by drawing with my left hand, my non-dominant hand, and just seeing what, how it does or what it, what it comes up with. It often comes up with shapes and forms that my right hand would not, my dominant hand would not. Um, and so any of these kinds of forms of silence, the sitting quietly with myself, almost always entails something like what you just described, where you can get into a state where you can hear those quieter voices or those quieter uh, motivations. Um, and, and that's, for me, that's where the more interesting stuff to create comes from too, right? It's, the, it's, it's not the obvious things. It's the unobvious things. And the unobvious things frequently come from those peripheral spaces that we're usually not paying as much attention to. Um, I feel like we don't really have edges as individuals, as, as beings. We, we kind of bleed off into the world around us. And the edge is really not anywhere near as well-defined as we like to try desperately to make it. And the emerging... Has, comes from when you can let go of your more conscious, constant repetition to yourself that of, of who you are, and you can let yourself be more amorphous and less hard-edged, and that's when the things can come in from the outside. That's when the the less known or the unknown things have a chance to step in, um, or at least step up, if nothing else, and. It's that dialogue or those moments when something unique or original can emerge. And it only happens in the quiet. I feel like the noise is one way that we fend off the idea that we are not immortal, uh, you know, hard-edged ourselves, uh, etc. Um, and sometimes I feel like really the only thing we actually own maybe it's the only thing that's really us is our point of view that's it we don't own our bodies they will be we don't have a lot of control over them much of the time right we don't own the space we live in we don't own the things we think we own they all can and will be taken from us what do we actually own we own the point of view this moment in time that we live in the things we noticed or didn't the things we paid attention to or didn't and then maybe some things that we created or made or left behind as a result of how we've managed or handled that. The things we did um, have echoes that remain outside of ourselves and, and affect others. If you're an artist and create a great work, those echoes can continue to reverberate from that work, maybe forever. Um, but that's really all we have. <laughs> there, mm -hmm. there isn't anything else. and. Um, making some peace with that has been extremely important to me. Um, and I'm not sure it's an easy thing to do when you're younger. I think you have to have been knocked around the block a few times before you realize that, you know, the shape of the block and <laughs> that, that the block is the block and, you know, whatever, and, and, and begin to let go of a lot of notions about who you think you are, who you think you have to be, or, and again, the quiet is where, where that happens the most. And that quiet, like you said, isn't necessarily about silence. But it is about letting go of certain channels or certain notions. 
Yeah, there's so many beautiful things in there that I would like to go deeper into. Um, one thing that struck me specifically was you said something like, we don't really have edges. Right? <laughs> and I'm curious how that relates to you to the idea of then having boundaries. Because I've found in my life, in my healing process, you know, the discovery of this idea of having healthy boundaries was very important. And I think I agree with you that we don't have edges. And I also believe that it's really important for us to assert our boundaries. Yes. As in like, you know, helping us define who we are in the world and what it is that we can accept and what we can't. So I'm curious how that has been for you. Um, and then specifically, I imagine in relationship to other people around you, especially because, well, you mentioned you've been married for two years, you have three children. I imagine those create situations that can be more difficult to assert healthy boundaries. And so, yeah, I would love to hear about your boundaries and, and how that relates to this idea of not having edges. So here we are again in another place where you're connecting a bunch of things for me that I had not connected before. Um, the idea of not having edges and then maintaining boundaries or, or you know, a healthy healthy push and shove basically between yourself and others, right? Where, where you can say no, um, or no, that's, that's not, that's not something I can let you do with me or, or around me, whatever. Um, I hadn't put those two together and thought about how they relate to each other. Um, and I very much understand where the, how they relate though. As soon as you ask the question, I just hadn't asked it before. To me, the idea that we don't have any boundaries is about the fact that the energies that are us and the energies that are the rest of the world that are, that are not us, um, are not well-defined that there's there. You can't really say that this thing uh, that I'm feeling or whatever is me or not me, or it's, it's out there. It's in here. Those things maybe don't make so much sense or more, more like we're inclined to define those too rigidly. And we're inclined to um, define them in ways that are convenient, but not useful. Convenient, but not efficacious. They don't, they don't make things happen anymore, right? I think what we're striving for actually is some kind of safety. And there really isn't any. So the ultimate safety is being is letting go of that idea and letting things kind of just happen, right? But as you point out, you don't want to just get pushed around by everybody else's movements and everybody else's desires and everybody else's needs. You have to figure out how to deal with that. And to me, that's not about the edges as much as it's about that point of view again, the center of yourself. Where is that? And how much space do you maintain around that center for your own work, your own thinking? And so it's not as much about boundaries. It's more to me about distance. Like I'm not trying to maintain an edge between me and someone else, but if they're, if they're pushing in on me and um, maybe even um, imposing in some way, they're too close. <laughs> and I have to, I have to push my point of view is to push on their point of view and establish that you need to be a little further away or I need more space between myself, my center and your need or your center 
And so it's more like that to me. It's how it feels than it does like a boundary. And it used to be, and I've, I've defined it very much like you just did, as boundaries. And I have a line I have to maintain. You may not cross this line. Um, and I, I realize that I'm, I'm unhappy if I let people move that line. But that to me is the beginning of where I understand it better for myself. Moving the line means that I now feel smaller and more constrained and people are too close. And so it's, it's more, to me, it's more about the distance than it is about the boundary. Yeah, I, I hear that. It makes me think of this definition I read once of boundaries, which is something like the smallest possible space in which I can love both myself and you. Yeah. Yes, yes. And the idea of personal space when you're having a conversation with someone, right? You, you, if you stand a little too close together, you no longer can just relax and relate. You're, you're wanting to step back a step, <laughs> right? If you're the person who's uncomfortable with that definition, that boundary. Um, and I think that's, that's a really good definition. That makes a lot of sense. And it fits well with the idea of the distance again, too, because what it is is, you know, what's the distance I need between myself and you where I can see you clearly and I can simply relate to you without being tense because you're too close. Um, I've let you step too close to me or I've stepped too close to you and I need to step back because um, it works both ways. There are times when I think we're imposing or pushing on others and it's actually bad for us because we have closed the distance in a way that's not healthy. The other person might be fine with it, <laughs> but it's not good for us. Um, and that's that's more a case where instead of them imposing or trying to push on our boundaries, we've shrunk something about ourselves in a way that we need to need to expand. And that, that would be, I guess, if speaking about boundaries, it would be a place where you need to push one of your own boundaries out and maybe, you know, acquire some more space around yourself. Yeah, I, I like that. It very much reminds me of the idea of taking full responsibility for your own experience. Yes. That, you know, it's not always the other infringing on my boundaries. It's sometimes just me making the space around myself too small. And then obviously mm -hmm. I feel constrained, but it's kind of me doing that. So mm -hmm. I can take responsibility for that. So yeah, that, that resonates. That's beautiful. Stephen, I'd love to know a bit more still as we approach um, the end of this recording session. You mentioned journaling in the very beginning, mm -hmm. right? And I would love to know more about your journaling practice in concrete terms. I've found journaling to be a very powerful tool, um, also sometimes like a fickle mistress. <laughs> sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, you know. So I'm really curious about your relationship with journaling and what it has helped you achieve in your relationship with yourself. I have three very different forms of journaling that I use, um, and I don't use them in any kind of regimented way. I just understand when I need one or the other. Um, in college, I learned how to use um, a Jungian form of journaling that was developed by Ira Progoff. Um, it's a form of depth journaling that's extremely structured and extremely difficult to practice in, in, its, in its fullness. There are workshops, three-day workshops that are offered on just how to handle and manage this. You create all these different kind of logs that are logs with your dreaming and logs and dialogues with, and it gets very much into parts and parts management. It's, it's, it's not specifically about that, but the, the journal ends up structured that way. You end up journaling with parts of yourself. You end up journaling with your interior versions of people from your past, people in your life now. 
you end up journaling with your works, the things you are building and creating. So it's a very highly structured form. It has a one piece though called the stepping stones, where you simply sit in in a kind of meditative, you know, uh, borderline state between waking and sleeping, and you let twelve moments from your life simply emerge onto the page, and then you put them just whatever order they come in, and then you put them in chronological order, and then you begin thinking through them. You almost run down through them and figure out which one of these feels hot to me. And then you journal and think about, dive into that moment in your life and try to remember in as much detail as you can. And again, you sit kind of in a quiet twilight space and let things come out of your memory and out of your subconscious about that moment. That's been very important type of journaling for me at certain points. I also have at times practiced um, Julia Cameron's um, morning pages, which is simply to write three longhand pages, no structure, every single morning at the same time every day, pretty much before you start your day. That is powerful for undoing blocks or for um, simply letting, you know, if you're really stuck because it's so completely unstructured, it's easy to start and do, but that discipline often also lets things shift in a way. It's good for, you know, moving a log jam pulling the, the blogs out in a way that you wouldn't ordinarily. And then the last is the kind of journaling I was talking about earlier, which is the deliberate journaling with my parts where I sit down and actually, you know, I stop and I get that quiet, same twilight space. And I basically say, I'm here. I'm listening. I would love to have a dialogue with someone or something. And I wait for some part of myself to step up. It might be a very shadowy part. It might be a small child. It might be the character that I call dreams. It might be the character I refer to as the bird. <laughs> it might be the trickster. It might be, I don't know. But I wait for them to show up. And then I kind of let them talk to me. And then the dialogue will begin from there. And sometimes those dialogues don't work. I can't get in that space. And other times it works very well. But I'll do any of those three. Um, the knuckle bones with anxiety, I guess, is, a, is, is yet another kind of form I use, um, one that the trickster showed me, like I said, and that's been very powerful for me, too. But it's sort of a it, it uses parts of the others and kind of puts it all together. So any of these will work for me. I do it in my drawing and painting. Um, I can I can do the same thing there. I can just take a piece of paper and let my left hand find things, just let it draw and then see what comes out. And those often surprise me. Um, on my website, it shows several different versions of the jester, the the, the court jester. Um, the fool is another another way to think of this character. The very first card in the tarot deck, right? I mean, these this image keeps emerging for me over and over again, too. Much of my life, I've tried very hard to be the person in control, the smart one, um, the one who knows the answers, the one who knows the names. And the idea of the fool or the trickster, the person who takes nothing seriously, that takes everything and turns it on its head, who doesn't know and therefore is open to, to what might be other than that, has been a recurring theme for me because I think I need that as an antidote almost for other things. And so all these journaling methods find me often encountering the same images or the same beings. Um, and again, as far as boundaries go, is the trickster part of me? Is the trickster someone I'm encountering that's not completely or entirely or just me? I don't know. 
I don't think I need to know. I'm not sure I want to know. <laughs> mm, yeah, I love that. I, I agree with that so much. There's, there's so much grace in the viewpoint, I don't know, which yes. is a viewpoint I tend to practice a lot yes. in, in any kind of situation. And that's what I hear also what you're referring to as this trickster. Is this you? You don't know and it's fine, right? But it's useful. Right. And I, I, I honestly think the I don't know is part of the quiet. Mm, the I don't know I might that. even be almost the core of the quiet. Right? You, the, the noise is more and more, I feel like the noise is us trying to assert our knowledge, right? our like I said, our boundaries, our shape. This is me. Everything else is somebody, something else. Um, all of those things all feel the same to me the longer I live. And this is why the older you are, the, the wiser you become, the harder it is to impart that wisdom to anyone else because it eventually boils down to such simplicity that you can't even describe it to anybody anymore. It's like the, the journey there was the whole thing. And you can't describe that to anybody. And where you end up at the end is like, it's so simple. It's like one pebble off the beach that has been smooth to the point where how do you, how do you, how do you even describe this? And how do you describe its importance? That's the hard part. That's, that's what wisdom is. It's this, it's this understanding the importance of things. And you can't, you can't give that to anybody. They have to get there for themselves. And so that's, that's that's the whole whole point and the the knowledge gets stripped away and eventually the i don't know is is maybe maybe where we're all trying to get but you can't just pick it up off the beach at the beginning you have to knock all the edges off and smooth that stone yourself and it takes a long time for some people it takes their whole life for some people never get there i think um i don't know that's where the quiet is. The quiet is in the I don't know. I couldn't have picked better words to end this conversation. Stephen, thank you so much. You're so welcome. This has been so valuable for me. Thank you. <laughs> Wonderful. That's good to hear. I will make sure that I post links to your website and maybe your social media profiles in the show notes uh, so people can engage with you if they wish. And... Yeah, I wish you a very beautiful day. Thank you. You too. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the podcast. You can also read more of my thoughts on Twitter. I will post a link in the description. And if you are interested in improving your relationship with yourself, please subscribe to my email list at relatingtoself.com. I will then send you meditations, rituals, practices, and more of these beautiful conversations. Thanks. <laughs>